Let's just pray here real quick again. Heavenly Father, you wrote it. We pray that you would teach it through your spirit and then help us just to live it in all ways and all things. In your name we pray. Amen. We've been doing our study here through the book of Matthew for a while. And when we got to the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5, remember this point. We've made this point for many weeks, but it bears repeating. If you look in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, this message is given to the disciples, followers of Christ. This is what God has asked us and how he's asked us to live in a fallen world. We're asked to live purely in an impure world. And not just outward obedience, but what he wants is our heart. And this has been this ongoing theme for the last few weeks. God just doesn't want our outward obedience, but the heart. We've quoted the passage out of Psalm 51 where Jesus said, excuse me, where God said to David, the sacrifice in bulls and goats is not what I want, but I want the broken, contrite spirit. 1 Samuel 15, if you remember the story there in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was asked to go utterly destroy the Amalekites. And what happened was that Saul kept a lot of things back. And what Samuel said to Saul was, God just wants obedience, Saul. He wants you just to obey. He wants your heart. So as we learned the last couple weeks, it's not that God doesn't want us to actually not commit murder. He doesn't want us in our heart to have murder and anger. It's not that God doesn't want us to not commit adultery. He doesn't also want us in our heart to not lust. It's not that he just wants us to have a smile on our face. He wants us to truly love our enemies as well. So it's not about the outward obedience, about the heart. What we have here starting today now in Matthew 6, it's not about the outward righteousness, but it's really what's going on in your heart. Because you can look outward righteous. You can sound good. You can pray good. You can look good. But what's really going on in your heart? The goal is Matthew six twenty one: For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God says, where is your heart when it comes to ministry to me? And there's four different areas that he talks about this morning. The first one are good deeds. Then he talks about prayer. Then he talks about fasting. Then he talks about investing your treasure. So you want to give for God, not man. You want to pray to God, not man. You want to fast for God, not man. You want to invest for God, not man. So let's jump into this and see what this actually looks like. Matthew 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret himself will reward you openly. Two points here real quick, and you're going to see this repeated in all these examples. The first one is the word hypocrite. The word hypocrite literally means two-faced. In the Greek, it was an actor. So what happens is you have one face on when you're in public. Look at me. I'm a man of prayer. I'm giving. I am a, a man of fasting. I'm a man of investing for the Lord. But in private, that's not what you are. God says, hypocrite, you're putting on a second face. The second thing you're going to see is this idea of a reward. God says you can either have an eternal reward or you can have a reward on this earth. Now, the goal is to invest for eternity. We have to stop and ask, where are we investing? Where do we want to gain? Is it on this earth or is it for eternity? So with those two mindsets, let's talk about this. Charitable deeds, depending on your translation. Alms, good deeds. Some of your translation says, practice your righteousness. It's good to give. Remember last week in verse 42 of Matthew 5. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. It's a good thing to give. Now, what Jesus is asking, though, is, I'm not asking about your outward righteousness. He goes, I'm asking about your heart. Why are you giving? For the pat on the back? For the name on the building? For the picture on a wall? 
He goes, if you're giving for the pat on the back, the name on the building, the picture on the wall, guess what? Verse 2, surely I say to you, they have their reward. You got your reward. The world thinks you're a good guy. They think you're a good gal. But what Jesus is saying is, I want you to think for eternity, verse 4, where your father rewards you. See, God sees. Look at verse 4. Your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. What does he see? He sees our actions. But even more than that, he sees our motive. He sees our heart. See, we only see actions. So when I see somebody giving and fasting and praying, I look at that action and I say, Amen. But I don't see their motive. What Jesus says is, I want to see why you're doing it. There's a real neat story about the widow giving up her two mites, if you remember that. And it says that Jesus is sitting by where they give money. And the King James used the words, he was, Behold. Behold is an interesting word. It means he was watching everybody give their money. But in the original Greek, it means he was actually looking at their heart. So yes, everybody's giving money. But Jesus says, I'm actually looking at your heart to know why you're doing it. And this is what he's saying here in verses 1 through 4. Thank the Lord you're out there giving. You're giving of your time, your energy, your resources. But Jesus says, why? Why are we doing it? See, everything we do has an ounce of pride to it, doesn't it? Are we really giving because we want people to see what we're doing and to appreciate us and to affirm us? Or are we really stopping and doing it because this is what the Lord told me to do? You ever thought about when pride really started to affect you? I was thinking about this this week. The first time I felt pride and I did something stupid because of pride. Back in first grade, for you that went to Deschler Elementary, Mrs. Justin. I don't know who had Mrs. Justin in here. Mrs. Justin, well, we had these chairs that we had to pick up after reading time, and we took different turns picking up chairs. Well, I can remember distinctly it was a competition who could pick up the most chairs at one time. So the record was two chairs. So it was my turn to pick up chairs. I picked up four. So I'm picking up four, and as I'm trying to move them, have you ever had that where you're trying to pick something up really heavy, and you start going backwards because it's so heavy? So I picked up the four chairs. I start going backwards. I'm trying to impress people. And I realize I'm going to fall. So I quickly, as much as possible, turn the chairs around to set them down. I turn them around right into Mrs. Justin. Took her out. She may still be on the floor. I don't know. But I took her out hard. Pride. I'm six years old. I can pick up four chairs. Everybody look at me. Nearly 33 years later. Pride. Look at me. Affirm me. Tell me I did a good job. Tell me what I'm doing is good. Tell me you got something. Affirm. No. I'm doing this because the Lord says it's not about you. It's about me. And see, the thing is, we can get our reward. We can do good, get our reward on this earth, and we feel good. Jesus is saying, I want you to think past this world and start investing in eternity. Look at what happens for eternity. carries so much more weight. I know with my kids, I could go up to them. I could say to them, listen, I will give you one of those snack size M&M packets. You know what I'm talking about? It's like got like three M&Ms in it. So the snack size packet, I would give that to them and say, now listen, if you don't eat this, tomorrow morning when you get up, I'll get you the big four-pound bag of M&Ms. I'll get you the big four-pound bag. I know I could do that. You could have M&Ms for breakfast for all I care. You know, a whole bowl. I'm telling you right now, I know I know what some of my kids would do. I know Elias. He wouldn't see the future. He would invest. He would wait for the day. He would wait for the day. I even think my three-year-old would wait. You know who won it? God bless him. Layden. 
Laden would open up that snack size of M&M's and he would eat his three little M&M's, take the reward right then without any understanding. If you would just wait till the next day, you could have four pounds of sugary goodness. He's six. Some of us still have this at 46, 56, 66, 76. We're still investing in this world thinking, I want my reward, I want my gain here. Or what Jesus is trying to tell us, look past this, look why you're doing it, and let's get to the heart and let's get to the motive. Because do you want everybody to blow the trumpets and give you the glory? Verse 2, fine, you got your reward. What does that mean? I found this fascinating. This is out of a John Corson commentary. Jesus said, don't be hypocritical in your giving. How do the hypocrites give? Originally, there was an area at the side of the temple court called the Chamber of the Secret. People would go there and drop gifts designated for the poor in a large chest called the trumpet. Now, depending on where you study this out, some people think there was actually up to 13 of these. These were funnel shapes, and they looked like a trumpet. So what would happen is you would go up in the different trumpets, the different places where you would give, the money went to different things. So you'd go to the temple and you'd give your money. Well, later, the poor would come to the chamber of the secret and receive gifts from the trumpet. It was all done very discreetly, with humility and honestly. But as the years went on, the Pharisees decided it wasn't practical to go all the way to the temple to give alms to the poor. So instead, they tied a small brass or silver trumpet to their belts. Then whenever they wanted to give to the poor, they stood on a street corner and blew their trumpets. Upon hearing this, the poor people in the area would gather around the generous Pharisee as he distributed his alms with great flourishing while everyone around said, My, look how righteous he is. And this is what Jesus is saying. Now note, he doesn't say, Don't give. Don't help people out. Don't serve. Don't minister. Because God still gets the glory. He goes, but what you're missing out on is your heart. So the first here thing about giving, giving of your time, energy, and resources, the Lord says, why are you doing it? What is your motive behind it? Is it for the reward? Is it for the pat on the back? He says, fine, you get your reward. He goes, but I want you to look past this world. He goes, I want you to look into eternity to see the good of investing in that That will bless you more than you can ever imagine. So what about the next one now? We talked about giving. What about prayer? Verse 5, And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. Look at the repetition again of hypocrites and reward. Once again, he's not saying prayer is not bad. He goes, but they got their reward. So what would happen back during Jesus' time? Well, back during Jesus' time, there are certain times you're supposed to pray. 9, 12, and 3. What we can piece together from this is that there were certain Pharisees that they'd be on their way to the temple. And as they got close to 9, noon, or 3, they would stop and realize, Oh, it's almost noon. I'm not going to get to the temple in time. I should probably just stop right here on the corner and pray. And everybody would stop and say, Wow, look at that man. He's just stopping. He's just stopping what he's doing. He's just stopping right now and he's praying. What a righteous man. And what would happen is people would stop and see this and think, wow. Jesus says, hey, you got your reward. Everybody saw you. But he says, I want your heart. Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your heavenly Father knows the things that you need of before you ask Him. Now, be careful with these first two points, because it would be easy to say, well, then it sounds like we should never pray in public. No, that's not what he's saying. He says, watch your motives. Why are you doing it? Is it that you want everybody to hear you say, wow, you're a good prayer warrior? 
Are you really willing to get together with your brothers and sisters and give it to the Lord? He's not saying verses 1 through 4, don't give. He says, check your motives. Why are you giving of your time, energy, and resources? See, now the problem is we hear this and we say, well, now I'm afraid to say anything. I'm really excited about what the Lord did this week. And if I come up to a brother or a sister and say, guess what happened? God gave me an opportunity to minister to somebody. And as I was ministering to them, and then it hits me, oh, I just lost my reward. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is check your heart. Are you telling the story for everybody to say, good job, good job to you? Or are you telling the story to be like it says in Matthew 5, verse 16? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, but glorify your Father in heaven. That's the catch. Check the heart. Check the motives. So we don't want to be doing the public prayer, everybody look at me. Verse 6, it's between you and your father. Well, we don't stop on the corners right now and pray like that, do we? Problem is people still have some prayers like this. I remember one time being with somebody, and as soon as they started praying, their voice changed, and they started praying in King James. Sounded much more eloquent. It sounded much fancier. I've had people come up to me a lot, especially in marriage counseling, because in marriage counseling, I always recommend husbands praying with your wives. It creates that spiritual oneness and that connection, and it helps you as the leader to say, I want to pray and lead my family spiritually. And a lot of times the guys come up and say, I can't. I can't. I'm not good at praying. I feel embarrassed about praying. I do this or that. And I always try to gently encourage them, why are you praying? They're praying to your Heavenly Father, who you happen to marry his daughter. And you're just talking to him. You're, you're giving your life and your, your ministry and your marriage over to him. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be the perfect wording. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be any of that. I remember distinctly at a men's prayer time years ago, there was a guy that came, started out, and he started his prayer out with just simply, good morning, Father. Oh, I loved it. It wasn't, oh, heavenly, gracious, righteous Father who created the world. Good morning, Father. I mean, I can't imagine if I'd walk into the room, my boys would look at me and say, Father, mighty man of valor. <laughs> Father of the Irvins for generations to come. Hey, Dad, good morning. Hey, bud. That's the closeness. That's the connection. Hebrews 4 says we can boldly go to the throne of grace and we can just go to our Father in prayer. In verses 6 and 7, he's saying, hey, make it about me and you. Even if there's a group publicly, make it about me and you. Don't pray something that you want the person to your left to hear. Lord, as I'm talking to you, I sure hope they're listening. No, this is about me and the Father. And I just happen to be with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we all share the same dad, and we're all just going to talk together. And God says, that is what I will bless. That's what I will take care of. What about verse 7? And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Some of your translations say, don't babble. I say, this is why I don't pray. Because I don't know what to say, I stumble over my words, I stutter over my words, and I'm just kind of like this babbling person. No. What this is talking about is literally thinking that you're going to get your way with God by the words you use. Some examples from this. Back in, uh, we'll say, Acts 19, they were praying to the Diana, the goddess, and for two hours they just yelled, Great is Diana. Guess what? She never heard them. 1 Kings 18, hours and hours of, O Baal, hear us, a false god of the Philistines. He never heard him either. See, we still kind of think this to an extent, don't we? Lord, look how much I care. You've got to say yes to me because look how much I'm praying about this. I'm praying about this all the time. My words will wear you down, right? Just like when you finally give in to the kid, fine, go, take it. I just don't want to hear it anymore. 
No. Aren't you thankful you have a Heavenly Father that will tell you no? Aren't you thankful you have a Heavenly Father that will tell you yes? It's not your words. See, what so much we miss about prayer, prayer is not about trying to tell God what to do. It's, Lord, tell me what to do. Prayer is not about changing the situation. It's about changing my heart as I deal with the situation. So it's not my words. It's not me babbling on and on and on. Does this mean that I'm not supposed to repeat prayers? Well, Jesus himself repeated prayers, right? Matthew 26, he prayed in the garden a few times. Paul repeated the same prayer three times. There's nothing wrong with repeating prayers. But I have to ask you this. Why are you repeating the same words again and again? Is it some type of religious devotion? The more words I say and the more times I repeat it, the more likely God is going to hear. He sees my heart. He sees my devotion. No, he already sees your heart and devotion. He knows. Is it lack of faith? I have to keep praying this because when I give it to you, I really don't mean it. And so as soon as I'm done praying, I start worrying about it and I'm anxious again, so I've got to give it to you again. Or are you really repeating the prayer out of care and concern? See, God's not against repeating prayers. He wants to know your heart and motive. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. I pray a lot of prayers for my kids, for the church, for the Sunday message, for you guys. I hope I'm not doing vain repetition. My heart cares. I'm giving it over to the Lord. Hopefully today, three times today, I'll thank the Lord for food. That's not a vain repetition. Lord, at this moment, I am really thankful for what you gave me. It's the heart. It's the motive. That's what Jesus is saying. It's your heart and your motive. Because verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, for your Heavenly Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. He already knows what you need. So by you presenting your need to God, He's not surprised at your need. Lord, I'm feeling awful today. I pray for your hand of health to be upon me. I didn't know you were sick, James. He already knew. Lord, I'm really worked up about this situation. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. He already knows. So then why am I praying? Draw near to God. He draws near to you. It creates this closeness. It changes my heart. It gets my focus back on the Lord. It keeps me where I'm supposed to be. Because the flip side to this, flip side, can you go with me to Luke 18? What happens when we don't have the right heart and motives in prayer? Luke 18, please. Luke 18, let's go ahead and start here in verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, and they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Please stop right there, verse 11. Prayed with himself. How often are our prayers not really to the Lord? My prayers are to impress the prayer circle I'm with. My prayers are to impress the person I'm praying. My prayers are to myself. Well, I pray all the time. But are we praying to the Lord? Are we giving it over to Him? Because there's a lot of times in our Christian walk where we are, quote-unquote, praying, but are we praying with the right heart, the right motives to the right person? Look at His prayer. God? Well, He's addressing it to God, right? No, He's not. He's addressing it to Himself and to everybody else. I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Please do note, if you're making a scorecard, the Pharisee had a longer prayer, so he gets one point. The Pharisee had a more eloquent prayer, he gets two points. So I would say, and I'm adding to Scripture, so please don't stone me, I bet in verses 11 and 12 his voice sounded much better. I bet he sounded very, you know, authoritative, and I think he changed his voice, and it was just, you know, very melodramatic. So he should get three points for that. So it's three to nothing, because what we have here at the tax collector is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But whose prayer did the Lord hear? It was the heart. It was the motives. Free yourself in prayer, people. You don't have to make it sound eloquent. You don't have to make it super long. You don't have to have all the right words. Your Heavenly Father just wants to see His child come to Him and say, Lord, Dad, I need you. Would you help me with this? I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm worried. I need wisdom. I'm worked up. Whatever it is. And you're free now just to come talk to your Father. And that's what the Lord is saying. Make it about me and you. Out of care and concern. Not religious devotion. Not lack of faith. But Lord, I want to do it to you. So what does prayer look like then? Aren't you glad we have this? Verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. Please note as we get to something here called the Lord's Prayer. Please note a couple things. First off, it can't be the Lord's Prayer. Jesus could never pray this because in verse uh, 12, he talks about forgiving us our debts. Jesus never had any sin. Number two, please note that this is a model prayer. This has become the prayer that is repeated again and again and again. It was never the intention to become the prayer. Jesus is saying this is a model. This is an outline In this manner, pray like this. So how are we supposed to pray? Verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's break this prayer down. What do you see here? First off, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, make your prayers personal. You're not speaking to an ambiguous God. You are speaking to your heavenly Father. You are speaking to your Savior, to your Messiah, to your brother, Jesus. You are speaking to your future spouse, because we are the bride of Christ. So, it's personal. Connect there. Our Father in heaven. Next thing you see, hallowed be your name. That is a time of worship. In your prayer, there should be a time of worship. Your worship is not just on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night for 10, 15 minutes with a group of other people. Your worship is a daily event, and it happens in your prayer time. Lord, I want to stop, and I just want to start out my prayer with some praise. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for the health you've given me. Thank you for this. Well, I don't have a beautiful day. I don't have health, and he hasn't given me anything. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. There's always something to praise God about. Praise God for just being God. Make Praise an element of prayer. So often when we look at prayer, we turn it into a genie in the bottle to-do list for God. Hi, God, it's me again. I need you to do this, 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 and this. Thank you. Amen. Have that time of praise with them. So hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Focus. Your will be done, not my will be done. James chapter 4 says that we're just a morning fog that appears for a little bit and disappears. How often in prayer are we dictating God? God, I need you to do this. Lord, I need you to move here. Lord, I want you to do this. No, Lord, your will be done. Here's the situation. Here's what I'm worked up about. But I want your will to be done. 
because you have to trust him. Go back to verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you need of before you ask him. If he says yes, it's for your good. If he says no, it's for your good. If he says wait, it's for your good. He will answer at his time and the right answer, and it will be beautiful and it will be perfect. But it's not happening quick enough, right? I know somebody out here at church that somebody prayed for them to get saved for 27 years. 27 years. Maybe you have a loved one that's not saved and you're frustrated because it's been two weeks. Let the Lord keep planting seeds. Well, it's not about that. It's just situations in life and I need an answer right now. I just want to share a quick testimony with you. About a year and a half ago, we started praying about some stuff as a family. There was four things specifically that we were praying for. The Lord laid it on our heart and we went to the boys and we said, okay, guys, this is what we need to pray for, these four things specifically. And we started praying it at devotions and we started praying it at meals. Just these four things, Lord, we're going to give it to you. Well, the first one got answered within about a month. Amen. The other three got to be a year plus later. Nothing. Nothing. The other three that were left, God answered the one in December of last year. He answered the second one in January of this year. And then he answered the third one in February of this year. It took him a year and a half. But it was his perfect timing. It was his perfect will. And dare I say it's been perfect. Because that's the Lord. Faithful in prayer and just trusting that he is going to have his will be done on earth that is it in heaven. Trust him on that. Well, you know what? I have some needs. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. What you need for today, your Savior and Messiah will meet. Well, I got something going on next week. It's a really big deal. Okay, you know what? Jesus may return before next week. So let's focus on today. Well, what about tomorrow? Well, we're going to get to it in a little bit. Tomorrow is enough worry on its own. Now, this doesn't mean you don't pray about things in the future and you don't use your God-given common sense and wisdom to plan ahead. But what he wants you to focus on is just your daily bread. Daily, he will meet your needs. Daily, he will get you through it. He will get you through minute by minute, hour by hour. Trust him and he will take care of it. So we have our needs being met. Okay, what about the next one? Now spiritual, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There needs to be a spiritual time in your prayer life too when you're going to the Lord and saying, Lord, search me, try me. What areas am I failing in? What areas am I weak in? Reveal that to me by your Holy Spirit and then give me the strength to make the changes. Because a lot of your prayer life should be, Lord, I want to be more like you. What can I do to be more like you? Reveal that. And maybe as you're praying, the Lord also says, you know what? You got people you need to go make right with. You need to go to them and say, I'm sorry, or you need to forgive them. Let the Lord move in your heart spiritually as you pray to make you the believer that God has called you to be. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the battle plan, Lord. Fighting a tough fight. Lead me, guide me, deliver me from the evil one. I want to be this person you called me to be. So what does a prayer life look like? It's personal. There's a time of worship. There's a time of focus on the Lord's will. There's a time of giving your needs over to God. There's a time of spiritual growth. And there's also time of now lead me into the battle, Lord. Takes a lot of time. That's why the Lord says sometimes it's best to get up early and start the day with me. Now, I don't want to be legalistic about getting up early and starting the day with the Lord. But I'm going to be legalistic about getting up early and starting the day with the Lord. Jesus set a great example with that. David said, in the morning you will hear my voice. Some of you may do your devotions at lunch break. Some of you may do your devotions in the evening. That's fine. That's between you and the Lord. I know for me, me personally, and please note personal opinion, I want to start out the day. Because what happens is, as soon as I get out of bed, life gets crazy. So for that brief moment of right when I get up, I put my glasses on, read, 
pray. It's like, Lord, the day is yours. Because I want to make sure I'm starting out where you want me to be, Lord. Because so often I think what we do is we have our to-do list for the day. And so, Lord, as soon as I get done with my to-do list, I'll get right on yours. God's to-do list trumps your to-do list. No matter what your to-do list is. Let me say this one more time. God's to-do list trumps your to-do list no matter what your to-do list is. No matter what. And the way to know what he wants you to do, start out your day with him. It goes right into verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's some tough passages. Why is it mentioned there in prayer? It's mentioned right there in prayer because there's so many verses in the Bible that say this. God wants to hear from you. But the problem is, when we allow sin and unforgiveness into our heart, it completely wrecks our prayer life. It completely wrecks our prayer life. If one of my kids go up to one of my other kids, yells at them, screams at them, throws things at them, hits them, then runs to me and says, Dad, can I have ice cream? Probably going to say no. You just left your brother bloodied on the floor. We need to take care of that. Same thing happens spiritually. I live this life of sin, and then I go to God and say, God, can you? God says, it's not that I don't want to. Isaiah says, it's not that my arms are shortened. It's not that my ears cannot hear, because but your sin has separated me from you. God says, I want to deal with you first. Let's deal with the spiritual nature first. Specifically in 1 Peter, it says the husbands, if we mistreat our wives... Our prayer life is hindered. So if I ever run into a guy and he's like, yeah, I just don't even feel the Lord anymore, and I just don't even know what's going on. I got nothing here. I just feel this emptiness and this staleness. How are you doing with your wife? Oh, don't even ask about her. That may be your issue right there. Because we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We're supposed to have that love. And so that affects our prayer life there too. So what Jesus is trying to say in verses 14 and 15 is if you have unforgiveness towards others, this is going to affect your relationship with the Lord. This is going to affect how you and him talk. Let's talk about this. Can you go with me real quick to Matthew 18? Matthew 18. You know, Jesus said, excuse me, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. The point is that we have been so quickly and so easily forgiven by God, how can we withhold forgiveness from others? So he tells a parable about this in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. The common teaching of the day was three times. That's what most rabbis taught. Forgive somebody three times. After three times, forget it. So Peter is trying to look really big and powerful and mighty. How many times did I forgive them? Seven? Oh, wow. That's double. Peter, you're a man of God. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, if you're thinking, he literally means 490. We're talking numbers of completion here. A seven, a complete week, a complete number. I will say this, I have met one person that took this verse literally, and he keeps track. I mean that sincerely. And I'm going to also tell you one other thing. He's a bitter man. Because he's not looking at forgiveness, he's looking at it legalistically. The point that Jesus is trying to say here, this is not a legalistic of how many times I have to forgive you. It's I want to represent Jesus. Some of you have been hurt and wronged by somebody again and again and again. 
Now, if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to get the message because one of the things when we talk about loving your enemies and, and you know praying for those who despitefully use you, we also talk about the wisdom that God gave us. But ultimately speaking, there's not a place for bitterness and unforgiveness in your walk in relationship with the Lord. It will hurt you. Look at verse uh, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had brought to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, New Living Translation says millions and millions of dollars. This guy owes millions of dollars. Verse 25, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. I mean, can you imagine being in that position? You owe millions and millions of dollars. They come to you and say, listen, you can't pay. We're taking you. We're taking your wife. We're taking your kids. We're taking everything. Anybody here this morning that's ever been under any type of financial burden, you know the stress of getting the letters and the phone calls and the emails saying you owe. And you're like, fine, where are you going to get it? I got nothing. Nothing. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Did not just say, go get me the money. Forgave him the debt. Obviously, that's a picture of us in Christ. I I have done so much sin. You have done so much sin. It's unpayable. The only currency accepted in heaven is the blood of Jesus. I don't have that. I got nothing. And so, therefore, when I go to Christ and say, Father, forgive me, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So all of a sudden, that burden is lifted. It's like having millions, if not billions and trillions of dollars of debt just taken off your shoulders. You're free. So what does he do with his freedom? Verse 28, but that servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denaria. It's a couple thousand. And he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. What a picture of what we do. I have been forgiven for my murderous thoughts, my lustful thoughts and words that should never have been said, things that should never have been thought. I've been forgiven for all of that. But yet then when one person makes one little comment about me, I have the right to carry that burden, that grudge to my grave. Millions of dollars of debt have been paid off in the name of Jesus in my spiritual life, but then I'm ticked off at somebody for a few thousand. It makes no sense. This is what Christ is trying to say. He's trying to say, if you fully understand what Christ has done to forgive you, you will pass that forgiveness on to everybody you meet. You will pass that on. Christ set the example. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down on his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will give you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into the prison till he shouted till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants say, saw what he had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that he had done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also would do to you, each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. See, from his heart. This brings us back full circle. Don't just not murder somebody. Don't hold anger in your heart. Don't just not commit adultery. Don't lust. Don't just try to look for a way out of your marriage. Realize God says in your heart, understand the importance of marriage. Don't just say, oh, okay, I love you. No, in your heart do you love your enemies. Now into Matthew 6. Don't just go do good. Check your motives. Don't just pray. Check your motives. See, it all comes back to the heart. 
That's what the Lord is trying to say here. It's all about the heart issue. He's not looking for outward obedience. He's not looking for outward righteousness. He's looking for a heart that is focused on Him. The Lord runs to and fro the whole earth looking for a heart that's devoted to Him. Once again, I will read to you what David wrote in Psalm 51. You do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That's almost blasphemous for a Jewish man to say, you don't want sacrifice. Once again, I'll repeat the verse I said to you earlier with Saul and Samuel. Saul thought he was doing quote-unquote good. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's what the Lord is looking for. And what we've really been building up here these last few weeks is an obedient heart. Now we have a righteous heart. How does this happen? Go back to verse 3 of Matthew 5, please. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First point we made in the Sermon on the Mount. Poor in spirit. Somebody who has poured out their heart, they stop and they realize, I'm a sinner, I have nothing to offer you, Lord. It only comes through Christ and Christ alone. The only way your heart can be made right in the Lord is through Jesus and what he did on the cross. And when that happens, the obedient heart, the righteous heart, it's all for the Lord, not for us. And that's what the Lord is trying to teach us here, is why are you doing what you're doing? What's your motives? What's your obedience? We need to check that. So, for this morning, it was on doing good. It was on prayer. Next week, we're going to get into fasting. We're going to get into investing in for eternity. And God says it all comes down to is where is your heart? The worship team wants to come forward here for the final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to give you our heart. It's all about you. Help it to all be about you, not about us.